Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. This season's broad theme is navigating uncharted territory. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited and extremely privileged today to be joined by Professor Les Henry, who is Professor of Sociology and Criminology at University of West London, pioneer of British reggae and dancehall DJ Leslie Lyric, as well as the host and creator of the new YouTube and podcast series, House of You. Les, thank you so much for joining us. I think you're up there <laughs> with like one of the most accomplished people we've had on this show. Like, I think it's worth sort of saying to the listeners that usually, um, or when we initially invite guests to come on the podcast, they send us sort of some papers to look at or relevant topics they want to cover. But we kind of knew with Les that it would just be a kind of organic conversation or what Les says on the out of you as reasoning. <laughs> And I think it would be really good for us to just explain what reasoning is. As yeah, I'll try. Greetings, Sis Chantel and Brother Regis. And as I said, I am humbled and honoured to share this space with you because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you know, if we can't reason through our, I don't know, similarities, differences, to find the commonality of our condition, as Brother Malcolm X said then for me, we won't have much hope of transcending all this foolishness as members of the human family, because ultimately that's what we are. When we speak about reasoning, you know, I take that from Rastafari. I embraced aspects of Rastafari when I was about 11. I was introduced to a brother who many people know as Elder Herakuti, who's on Galaxy Radio, but I know him as Ras Cosmo Ben Imhotep. And if you watch the film Babylon, this is a little bit of homework for everybody. Watch the film mm. Babylon. There's a Ras walking down the street. I believe it's in Deptford. A chant, be a fireborn. That's him. That is Elder Herakuti. And I've known him since I was about 11. And I remember, you know, when we were young, my twin brother and I and some of our friends, we had these, we had some friends who lived in Forest Hill, South East London. And they said, why we have one Rasta man lived downstairs, you know, real Rasta with long locks and beard locks and everything. So that's when I met him. And one of the things that he encouraged us to do was to not argue as in quarrel, but debate. And the best way to debate is to bring something to the table. Otherwise, it's just conjectural. Now, that doesn't mean that issues won't arise, that you have nothing that you may not be familiar with but it doesn't mean that you can't pick up the trail of the reasoning and participate so one of the things about Rastafari and how they reason is everybody has something of value to bring to the table it's not determined by age or so-called qualifications or whatever because as Rastafari says about everyday liberty so we look at the natural world we look at the world around us and we must have an opinion. That's why we're all sociologists. Anyone who lives in the social, think sociologically. 
maybe yeah. they get spookified and it gets mystified within you know the hallowed halls of the academia the ivory tower but if you get up one day and think, why have they blocked all the roads in Lewisham? Mm. And your first response is, oh, they want to control the traffic. And then you think, but surely if they wanted to control the traffic, then why not just have it during rush hour? Mm. Why 24-7? Is there a deeper meaning? Is there something else going on? That is reasoning and that is thinking sociologically because you're thinking about your environment and your relationship to it and how your behavior is impacted by your environment. Sociology 101. So Rastafari, a sociologist, all of them. <laughs> That's one of the best definitions I've ever heard of sociology and what sociology is. What, what you're saying, Liz, I, I kind of get the sense when I'm out and about in the bits and I see people, people are aware of what's happening in the world. It'd be on a kind of the pandemic or whatever it is, but... It's the issue of reasoning. When it comes to this debate now, I'm struggling. So I might meet some of my pals and they will spout off stuff that's, at best, it's being misinformed. At worst, it's conspiracy and nonsense. And yeah. it's it's trying to get to them to have that rigour. Who am I to say anything? But I'm trying to get to a debate with these people. They become so inconst and so polarised by this Yeah, I find it difficult to talk to them. Mm. It's a massive problem. Right, for me... One of the things that I always do, and I perfected this with my own children, mm. is context. Mm-hmm. What's the context? So let's say we were going to reason about Rastafari. Okay. What house of Rastafari are we talking about? Mm-hmm. Are we talking about 12 tribes who, for me, and I don't want to disrespect any of my Rastafari brethren and sister, but they are the nearest thing to Seventh-day Adventists on the planet. And Seventh-day Adventists generally leave and become or embrace not become but embrace 12 tribes of israel but if you're talking about the more hardcore african-centered oftentimes anti-marcus garvey Mm -hmm. you might be talking about different houses or you might be talking about nazarites or nazarenes or bobo shanti or bobo dreads which rusters are we dealing with you know, which manifestation, it doesn't mean any are wrong, it doesn't mean any are right, it doesn't mean any are superior, it doesn't mean any are inferior, it just means, do you understand that aspect of Rastafari that you're saying, you're embracing? And the reason why, you know, often to, there's a, there's a famous African saying that says, never argue with a fool because passers-by won't know the difference. <laughs> And I know there's that Mark Twain says something like, never argue with ignorant people because they'll draw you down to their level and beat you with their experience, something like that. The point that I'm making is that you may be reasoning with people and they, you know, I've been accused of all kinds of things into conspiracy theories and blah, blah, blah. I look at patterns. I see patterns. You know, I I am a plumbing and heating engineer. I was an industrial pipe fitter. I teach martial arts. I see patterns. So when I think as an academic, I'm looking for patterns, patterns of behavior in this sense. So if you're reasoning with somebody and their only source of information is one of these online charlatans, like these, as my wonderful sister, Esther Stanford, um, Zose calls them, Holocaust pimps. (laughs) They pimp off the African Mm -hmm. Holocaust they know what you need to know. Mm-hmm. 
but they give you what you need to hear, which is not always the same. Because what you need to know might not be what you want to hear. So what a lot of them do is they will come, you know, I always say they get you high, they get you happy, and then they leave you alone. And that's what they do. So a lot of people will come from the States or there are people who are, who are, who are homegrown as well. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they'll give you little bits of information. I'll give you a very good example. I used to get invited to do um, African Liberation Day or whatever, whatever they turned it into, Mosiah Month or whatever. In, in August, they used to invite me to do those. Every year I would get an invite. And it was either 2008 or 2010. I really can't remember what, what date it was. We'd just done a trip to Egypt. Where we used to do study tours with New Beyond. That's myself and a, and a brother called Ray Bowen. We used to head up these study tours, take people to Egypt, whatever. And we would get back around the 12th of August. And we went when it was hot deliberately because it was cheaper and there were less people there. But it did <laughs> like a fire. Yeah. But mm. if you want to run out in a 45 degree sun, well, good luck to you. That's why we get up early, we leave and we come back and then you do whatever you got to do. But the point I'm making is I just got back from Egypt. So, and I think this event was on probably um, August the 17th, Marcus Garvey's Earth Day. I believe it's August the 17th. I'm sure it is. And I went to do this talk and it was in a venue in Brixton. And um, they asked me to speak about Garvey. Aspects of Garveyism, if we're going to call it an ism, and education. Who tell me for critique some of what Garvey did? Including mentioning that a holy parastas don't rate him because he called Selassie a coward. Who told me to mention that? I mean, it's documented. You read Tony Martin or, or Rupert Lewis, you know these people, it's in there. But who told me to mention it? So one bag of them started, whatever it is, chanting up. Well, you see, you duck, you see, you doctor les, you's a sellout, you know. You, 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 and they're going on and on. I'm telling you the truth, yeah. And I'm sitting in there. I'm not probably ninety percent of my life. I'm vexed, especially like when there's no football or or whatever it is, like or sci-fi. I'm a vex. So I'm telling you the truth. So I basically I said to them, okay, fair enough you know, whatever. And then they had a couple of young people on the panel. They were probably 19, 21, quite young to me. And one of them got up and gave this talk about Garvey. And he jumps up and he goes, yeah, you know, Garvey was the first fascist. Huh? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is what he said. Uh-huh. I'm sitting there. And they're all like, rare, 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 and they're whatever, whatever. So mistake number two for me was to say to this you. Garvey did say was the first fascist. I think it was within days of Mussolini declaring himself a fascist because he wanted to consolidate his borders. And one of the things about definitions of fascism and anyone who studies sociology, they tell you, one, there is no agreed definition of fascism. But to be a fascist, there are a couple of things you need. One, as Max Weber says, legitimate usage of force to enforce your will within the borders of the nation state. So if you're not a nation state, it cannot be a fascist. A militarization. So that's mm-hmm. uniform. So this, if, if we take somebody's facile definitions, the Salvation Army are fascists. Girls, guides, and Cub Scouts are fascists. How do we uniform? Them have medals and all kind of something. Mm-hmm. Yes? Right. Who tell me if I said that? 
they started on me again. And I said to the, I said to the you, I said to him, my brother, with respect, yeah, you follow these people. It's like them sending you out to battle with no armor and a toy mm-hmm. gun. Mm-hmm. I said, what you need to do, my brother, is you need to understand the difference between a rhetorical statement and a literal statement. Mm-hmm. Garvey said that in the context of a couple of things. One was he knew what fascism was and Garvey did not have a nation state. Yeah, a bit like when they accuse, you know, Minister Louis Farrakhan of being a fascist. And I say to people, but he ain't got a nation state. So maybe we need to find another word. The second one is part of that was Garvey's rhetorical responses to the fact that white people used to sing every nation as a flag but the coon. <laughs> that is why Garvey created the red, black and green flag, <laughs> which ended up in Ghana with the black <laughs> star in it. And the black star liner was part of the literal, pragmatic and practical approach to challenging and transcending white supremacist thought and action in the Black Star Line. Because many people don't know, the Black Star Line was created to contend with what? The Titanic and the other shit with a White Star Line. So I'm trying to give the youth some context. My God, them ton fun me. But listen to this. Check this last point I'm going to make. You know what I said to them? And they right. have not invited me. I lie. I think a couple of years ago they invited me to do something. You know what I said to them? I said to them, do you know something? No, there was one other thing as well. This is what another person said. They said, yeah, you know, because when we were in Africa before the Europeans got there, like our great kingdoms in Kemet, we were all whatever it was until Europeans. And I said, hold on a second. When Nama, who they call Menes, unified Kemet, and created the upper and lower kingdoms, which is where we get our United Kingdom. The whole notion comes from Africa. Mm. I said, we know there were no Europeans there, 4,000 BC. Mm. So who the hell was Nama killing and subduing as he was battling and warring from south to north? Not people who looked like him, not Africans to them vex. Because the thing is with them, you're not supposed to qualify anything. So the last thing I said to them is, I said to them, listen, yeah, I feel sorry for you lot in here. And they went, why? And I said, because you see, if you woke up in the world tomorrow and there was no white people, you'd have to go kill yourself because you only live to hate white people. They mm. never invited me back. <laughs> Until I think it was what, the, uh, last year or the year before. Because the mm. thing is with me, I am not going to espouse all this anti-human rhetoric because as you kind of alluded to before, this is what the National Front, this is what the Ku Klux Klan do. Yeah. They convince their members that we are not human, therefore we do not deserve human treatment. Why am I going to flip that coin? Those were some of the critiques that Paul Gilroy, Prof Paul Gilroy, used to get when people used to say he's literally one of the titles of his books, Between Camps. And I said, well, of course he is. His mother's black, his dad was white. Why why does he have to cleave to one side or the other? The difference is on what they conflate and they confuse is in this world, in this racialized system that I would argue has been constructed in this way for 500 years, he's black whether he likes it or not. And he (laughs) understands that. (laughs) It's political. (laughs) And that for me is where a lot of this stuff... So some of these youths who you want to reach or these people to reason... You just simple say, simply say to them, my brother, my sister, what's the context? 
Because once they start to think about the context, trust me, they will be more investigative. Those anecdotes really do sort of exemplify and position really well some of the things I think me and Tiso talk about on an almost daily basis right now, like how do we reason with or reconcile with issues of conspiracy, issues with trying to find answers to the constant management of white supremacy, trying to find answers to why you are continuously or people that are from a similar background to you are continuously subjugated. And you want, you almost want a a simple answer. And the simple answer is often those which you say that are are perpetuated by those that are preaching in a way that people just want to hear. They're preaching in a way that isn't critical. They're preaching in a way that isn't understanding or understanding Mm. the structural manifestations, the legacies, the colonial, the context, as Mm. you say. And I think those anecdotes, yeah, I think it's for us in our personal lives, but also thinking just broadly about the diaspora at the moment, like how do we reconcile with the constant proliferation of conspiracies? Also thinking about, yeah, COVID-19, all this stuff, conspiracy when we're up against people that are telling people what they want to hear and it's not yeah. rigorous i get it when i talk to my people and I, I, yeah, I, I get it sometimes Sorry, i, I say boom like you read the book but sometimes it's not like that i didn't start that i one of the first things i i got into it was through hip-hop right so listen to hip-hop yeah. and they will reference things so i think there's a guy called ross because there's, there's a tune called nature of the Threat. Nature of the yeah Threat. nature of the Threat. sick yeah it's yeah. a sick tune, right? When I first heard that, it blew my mind. But it made me go back to the historical record and kind of look at some of the things he says. And as a song, it's amazing. But some of the things is not factually correct, how he's linked yeah. all together. It made me think, okay, so if that's not factually correct, maybe that song isn't right. Because when I first heard it, I thought, Wait, he's right. It makes sense. Yeah. Guys, you just need to like look a bit deeper. Don't just take yeah. it as gospel. Like I said, people will send me stuff all the time on WhatsApp. And they will ask me for a serious comment. So one of the big things I started that, that kind of got me into thinking about this was resurgence against black people being racist towards Chinese people when the whole COVID thing started. Yeah. What do you understand about Africans in China? Not much, really. The hate that they had, the kind of animosity. And I'm like, but where does this come from? Where? Because yeah. two, two days ago, you didn't, you didn't care. Yes. But you see, that is that whole thing about um, it's an irrational rationale. Mm. Because basically... Yes. It's, do you know what? It's hard to think. Mm-hmm. The best example I can give you is I remember listening to Shabba <laughs> on an interview, and I love Shabba. I think that Shabba, I've written about this in a chapter I did with Les Back when he interviewed me, and it was called something like The History of the Voice or something. It's in one of these books, if I remember. But it's in the Auditory Cultures Reader or something. And I remember I said to Les, I remember the first time I heard Shabba's voice was in a dance in Jamaica. And it didn't matter what he said. Mm-hmm. It was his voice. It was almost like the whole of the ancestors are just coming out of this dude's <laughs> mouth. And if you notice, no DJ sounds like Shabba. None. Mm. Most DJ, Ninja Man, Cobra, Bounty Killer, Merciless. You know, you can basically categorize them. Mm-hmm. But none of them sound like Shabba. And I remember I was listening to an interview with Shabba. You know what Shabba said? That whoever was interviewing him said to him, why is it that you chat slackness more than culture and Shabba basically gave an answer where he said in Jamaica if you understand the recording industry in Jamaica it's like a production line 
which is why when artists dead, they can release like 2,000 tunes after the artist dead, long time, dead, buried dust, because it's like a production line. And what Shabba basically said was, he alluded to this. He said, look, if I'm doing a slapness tune, I can do it like that in the studio. If I'm doing a culture tune, I have to sit down and meditate and penetrate on what I'm going to say. Thinking is not easy. Mm -hmm. So what you're basically asking a lot of people to do is actually to think, take a step back, not this spurious claims for objectivity that we do as social theorists, because one of the things I say is, once somebody gives you an idea or says to you, what do you think of this? It's intersubjective. You take mm -hmm. it in. How are you going to answer it if you don't? meditate on it and so for me it's because thinking is not easy and sometimes you're asking people to think in ways that they haven't been encouraged to think before my children especially my last two daughters are in their 20s now we used to take like young people when we had our company new beyond learning by choice myself my wife and my best friend delwin and a sister called tracy we used to take groups of young people uptown. So we take them to the British Library. We yeah. take them to the Science Museum. We take them places like that, yeah. Places they wouldn't want to go. And we would take them in there, we'd be reasoning with them. And I remember one day we were on a bus. I'm sure we were coming down Oxford Street and a brethren of mine, cool brother called Carl, you know, very clever guy, got into a discussion with my daughter, who was 13 at the time, she's 26 now. And everything he asked her, she was like, yeah, but you know, there are different ways you can look at that because have you perhaps considered this? In the end, because he couldn't handle her, he said to me, oh, your daughter's so feisty. And I said, but she hasn't said anything feisty. I said, what you don't like is the fact that you can't reason with her. Mm. And that's not my problem. Mm. You know, don't try and reason with her if you think you're reasoning with a, a kid, therefore, because you're an adult, you naturally know or think better than she does, because he clearly didn't. If he knew her, he wouldn't have opened his mouth. <laughs> I'm serious, because what we always do is we encourage them to think. Mm -hmm. So if you've got children, I've seen parents chastise children and they don't know what they've done wrong. I've seen students get feedback on essays and they don't know what they've done or what they could have done better. How are they going to do it unless you... You see, this is why I'm into goal models and not role models. And I got the whole notion of goal models from a wonderful brother called Brother Twilight Bay, who is one of the only imports from the States that I have a lot of time for, mm -hmm. and a sister called Makeda. May I tell you the truth? Yeah. But Brother Twilight Bay, I remember I met Brother Twilight in 2005 and I was having serious problems with this whole notion of role models. Mm. Serious problems with it. Yeah. And Twilight said to me, yeah, brother Les, that's because you need to deal with goal models. And I said, what's that? And he explained it to me. And then I realized that it came from Jim Brown, a Hollywood actor, who created the first truce between the Crips and the Bloods in his garden, because brother Twilight was there when he was about 15. Yeah. That's why brother Twilight, babe, you want to know about gangs and young people and their behaviours, who would be someone beautiful to have on this, you should get mm. Brother Hakim and Brother Twilight Bay and another brother called Paula Binner. They do wonderful work in those mm. areas. But Brother Twilight, he said to me, yeah, because you need goal models because no one's perfect. And he said the first thing Jim Brown said to them is, you all ain't perfect. So if you, let's say, someone comes up to me and says, you know, Les, how can I be a plumber? I can teach you how to be a plumber. I can teach you how to install central heating and boilers i can take you up to black belt legally in kung fu 
illegally in karate because I'm not insured <laughs> for karate. But I could take you through the syllabus to a black belt. I can definitely get you through a degree in sociology, anthropology, cultural studies, or criminology. I can absolutely guarantee anyone who comes to me, as long as you want to put some work in, I can take you through the steps. I could also take you into how to be a young father at 20 with five children for four different women, if you want me to tell him, I can tell you off of that talk. But I'm not sure that is something you'd want to learn. Therefore, I am not a role model for anyone, but I can be a goal model as long as it's specific. Again, it comes down to context. Context is everything for me. How I encountered it when I was in the system is thinking critically, right? Yeah. And I guess that's something I learned as I as I went through. But when I'm speaking to these kids, everyone has a level of awareness that they feel that something's amiss. Yeah. And they and, and they start down that rabbit hole. And social media does just reinforces that that kind of searching down that rabbit hole. Yeah. When you're kind of up against those kind of forces, sometimes they dismiss anything that's from the West. And I'm saying like, that's not right. It makes no sense. Because you're from the West. You're born here. That's all you understand, really. Like I said, I I struggle. All I want to do is lift weights when I go to gym. (laughs) But they they tell me this kind of nonsense. But do you see what it is? You know, at the end of the day, part of it is the fact that people confuse knowledge with racialized knowledge. Mm -hmm. Europeans racialize knowledge. Knowledge should not be racialized. Knowledge should just be knowledge. And the fact is, they created their system based on white supremacist thought and action, couched it in whiteness as the superior, the epitome of everything, and blackness is at the bottom, and then all the gradations in between. But they racialized knowledge. Far too many, and I will say us, as peoples of African ancestry, black people, Caribbean, West Indian, whatever, Mm-hmm. We invest too much in those notions of racialized knowledge. So the flip side is, like, we get the big... You, If you've heard me talk, you'll hear me say, I ain't getting the big black flag out and claiming everything. Mm-hmm. Because then what happens then? I hear people, oh, all martial arts come from Africa. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so the Chinese people, maybe they did. But mm-hmm. let's say the people in parts of China just thought, oh, let's just do this because Africans do it. Let's not copy the creatures that are around us. Let's not differentiate between Northern Kung Fu and Southern Kung Fu because Northern Kung Fu is very leggy because the people are generally taller and longer-limbed. Southern Kung Fu, they're squat, so you get Wing Chun, a lot of the arm techniques. So when you watch a Kung Fu film, oh, yes, Northern leg versus Southern fit. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yesterday. Sick. Sick. I was asking you quickly, Liz, what style do you do? My dad does Wing Chun. That's why you remind me of my dad. Right, your dad does Wing Chun. We yeah. do Hunken Five Animals Kung Fu, uh-huh. which is one of the traditional Shaolin styles. It comes out yeah. of Kung Fu. So we have aspects of what they're doing, because Wing Chun is based on the crane mm. and snake, I believe mm-hmm. it is. I think Wing Chun is based on the crane and the snake. Mm-hmm. They're two other animals we do. So we do the original, in big quotation marks, five animals. So we do dragon, leopard, tiger, snake, crane. Sick. I've also done Buddhist fist kung fu. And me and my girls also trained with the Chinese monks when they came over here. With the Shaolin? With the Shaolin monks. We oh. trained with them for about six months. Then they moved out of Woolwich, went to Brixton. So yeah, I trained yeah. with them. And then they went to Tufnell Park 
where their thing is. So I found a local style called mm. Hungry Five Animals, which I've been I've I've been doing that for about twenty years. But I started martial arts in 1972 when I did Shotokan Karate. That's what I started off. Yeah, I got black belt in Haika Shinkai, full contact, badman karate. <laughs> well, what the karate style in the world? Look it up on Google, mate. Look down, four months down karate, Haika Shinkai comes up. We don't wear all that padding and all that mad stuff. <laughs> Before you just got on to telling us a bit more about martial arts, it feels like you were calling for more universal particularism amongst us in the diaspora. The reason why I'm sort of want to draw that out a little bit is because the lure of conspiracies yeah. earlier. When we are up against the daily grinds of structural and interpersonal racism and also white yeah. supremacy, I kind of always want to give those people that want to sort of wave the black flag, not necessarily the conspiracy, but let's just say the people want to wave the black flag. I kind of always want to give them the benefit of the doubt because it's hard. As you say, like thinking is hard. And when it's so constant and so violent and like, even if it's not in our interpersonal, even if it's just watching the news, social media, all this stuff, it's hard to not feel that yeah. way, I think, for many people. I get I get it, basically. Mm-hmm. I understand why. But as but I do, I 100% agree with what you're saying. Well, you don't 100% but agree. But I try to... Because that's what I did. Why don't you? Why don't you? It's 100% no, that, that agree. That disturbs me when people say that. But I think... I think Does the point... I think it's a bit of a, it's a brummy term yeah. phrase, I think, there, to be fair. Don't think it's too deep. I'm, I'm playing with it. <laughs> it's hard to tell because my voice doesn't really change. But I think, I think the broader point is, it's because oftentimes, you know, we'll condemn people because oftentimes what they embrace is just one bag of foolishness. So we will. But I think that if we try and think about where are they in their journey, but that's if mm. they give you the license to discover that when you're reasoning with them. Because oftentimes they don't. Because, you know, the beautiful point you made was we are bombarded with this stuff. And the thing is, when you know you are directly being lied to, much of what else you experience sounds true. Mm-hmm. It's just a human thing. Oftentimes when you're being lied to, someone will come up and say this. So when I say about the black flag, you know, Best way to frame is if we let's talk about decolonizing the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Now, loads of white people who I believe know better, white academics, yeah, what they've done is they've turned it into an argument that you want to destroy and remove Western canons of knowledge. But to me, that's not what it's about for me. What it's about is you put in the counters that will allow people to have a balance. You see, white supremacists are afraid of balance as much as they're afraid of truth. Because, for instance, they know that much of what people believe today, especially about others, racialized others, is definitely constructed and perpetuated, proliferated, whatever words we want to use, over the last 300 years, 200 years. I'll give you a for instance that Peoples of African ancestry are only good to be entertainers, okay? Now, if you think about it, we were enslaved, 
Yeah, forget about how we got to the so-called West, but we were enslaved. We know this. We were properties. We know this. We were articles of commerce. We know this. Now, let's say you've got Africans on the plantations who the, the plantation, the thing is, if you meet somebody, let's say you, you meet an eight or nine-year-old child and you reason with them for five minutes and you'll think, Jesus Christ, if you did this, yes or no, yeah? So, the, so let's say that the chattel slave master met Africans who they thought, Jesus Christ, I can't beat this one, I can't kill this one because this one may be of use to me. Like Stephen in Django. This one might do all my books and organize the plantation. Because this is the reality. Tucson Lovatur was a dark-skinned house Negro. Uh People forget that. Uh He was a bit of an anomaly because usually they wouldn't let people too dark near the house. But he was. So the point that I'm making is, if you're the so-called slave master and you know that some of these people are highly intelligent, does that not refute your whole notion that these people are less than? Uh It makes logical sense. But to maintain the system, you have to act like that's what they are. So therefore, you encourage them to do sports. You encourage them to sing. You encourage them to dance. You try and keep them away from the sciences. Then once it gets into in perpetuity, or it gets in perpetuity, or whatever the word is, you don't have to do it because the system maintains itself. When I was at school, why is it that Malcolm X's biography, he told them he wants to be a lawyer. They said, mm-hmm. no, be a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter. Why, yeah. when I was at school and I told them I want to be a, a, a solicitor, they said to me, you're too thick to do a thinking man's job. The thing is, myself and my twin brother were always in the highest classes. There's a disconnect there. There's a disconnect from what you're doing and producing to the expectation. But if the people with the power of the expectation can enforce their will, you're snookered. Mm. Then the day comes when you actually start to believe that. And not only do you believe it, you inculcate that in your own children through socialization. And that's how it works. Do you know how many black parents come up to me? When I, especially when I used to do a lot of parents groups and interventionist stuff, a lot of black parents would come up to me and they would say things like, oh, you know, my son isn't very academic or my daughter isn't very academic. And I say, what the hell does that mean? What does that mean? Those are the things that frustrate me. I'm saying, listen, before PowerPoint, listen, I can't draw nothing. Yeah. <laughs> if I draw, if you ask me to draw a house, a car, and a horse, they'll probably all look the same. Except one might have wheels and one might have legs <laughs> and one might have a chimney. I can't draw. But once I've found PowerPoint, I can create wonderful presentations. Do you understand what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. I may not naturally be an mm-hmm. artist, but let's say I wanted to go into graphic design where I could use a computer. So the thing is what a lot of us do, too, far, far too many of us, people of African ancestry, what we do is we stymie our own creativity and we mm. do it in our children as well. And a lot of the times is it you believe that hype. One of the reasons I got expelled from school, was I used to say to teachers, I'm the first black person who can think. Because I was doing African black history studies at Moonshot Youth Club in 1972. Mm. So I was learning from people like Elder Herakuti, Professor Gus John, brother called Patrick Berry, who who opened up Choice FM. They were some of the people who were teaching us, brother called Rupert Clark. One of my sisters used to help out with the teaching. Sister called them, who's Dr. Magna Edu now. Those people are just a couple of years older than me, but they were some of the tutors. 
and they were teaching us African stroke black history in 1972. Then I'm going to school and the teachers are basically, everything is white. Every single thing that was ever created was white. The guy who wrote the, the, the Three Musketeers, white. Everybody white. <laughs> and yet we're getting these counter narratives. Mm. But who has the power in that dynamic? The teacher does. Mm. And the teacher could ridicule me. So let's say I said to them, oh, you know, Alexander Dumas was, was black. What's wrong, Henry? <laughs> you better get to detention, mate, because either that or we'll, we'll medicate you or sedate you because <laughs> you must be crazy. But the thing is, the point I'm making is the teachers, bless their souls, invariably didn't know. They only knew what they were taught. And that's the cycle that has to be broken. So to me, when we talk about decolonization, et cetera, et cetera, you, could leave, you can leave all the statues up. You can leave every damn book that's in the library already. Just put some more in there. Give the students more resources. Because at the end of the day, some of my colleagues looked at my curriculum for the modules I teach and they went, oh, your curriculum's already decolonized. And I'm like, but if I know black criminologists, why don't I put them in there? Of course I'll put them in there. Mm. Knowledge should not be racialized. If you think about um, Descartes, I think therefore I am. It wasn't I think therefore I am. It was white middle-class men think, therefore everybody else is. That's why the feminine was, you know what Durkheim said? Emil Durkheim, everyone who does sociology and anthropology will get Durkheim. Do you know what Durkheim said about women? In one of their great philosophical discussions they used to have in those cafes and whatever it is. Yeah. When I said about, oh, what do you think about women? You know what he said? Give them a bit of religion and a pet. So what I'm basically saying is sometimes we will look at things and, and that doesn't mean that I don't take a great, great stock from his work on anime if you want to understand suicide and stuff like that. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. But Menard got invested in that everything himself. Mm -hmm. I was invisible in that. Mm -hmm. When I teach my, my students Marxism, I'll teach them the base and superstructure and you know, all that, whatever it is we're supposed to teach them. And I'll say to them, but one of the reasons why I don't invest in notions of class, because I am what? I mean, I know I'm middle class now because I'm a professor. I don't know what I'm supposed to be. But if, if I get vexed and say sod it and buy a van, I'll be a plumber again tomorrow. So I'll be working class. But my point is, when Marx was theorizing about class, African people were parts of the forces of production. We were not in the relations of production. We were part of the foot, like a horse, a donkey, or a mule, or the wind. Mm -hmm. So therefore, why would we invest a lot of our time arguing whether we're this class or that class? Because at the end of the day, and this is something I always say, if you have to prefix anything with black, you're in trouble. First black this, okay? Someone said to me, do you know you're the first and only DJ to have a PhD who actually was a proper DJ, not these little piano pia ones who used to chat in there. <laughs> I'm talking about going out and trying to get and facing Saxon DJs trying to bury you or yeah. crashing with IHS or Unity or Frontline or Coxon. I ain't talking about yeah. man stand up in my bedroom and, and make two cassette. I'm talking about going out there on the front line, DJ. Yeah. They said to me, oh, do you know you're the first one with a PhD? You're the first one with a professor. And I'm saying, yeah, I might be the first one, but I bet I'm not the only one because I met some very clever people in the system. Dance. Yeah. The fact is they didn't pursue it. I did. So why am I going to want to embrace these accolades about being the first this or the first that? Because then what that, ha what that does is it reinforces that whole sense of whiteness as, you know, when they say if you're... 
And I've heard young people say this even up to the last couple of years. You know, you're acting white. Why are you acting white? Why are you talking white? You know, my daughters speak correctly. Why? Because we correct their English. So unlike us, who we chat anyway it comes out, they can if they want to. But when they yeah. say things, I remember when my daughters used to sing, used to say things like when they were learning to read and write and they would go, oh, because I ripped that yesterday. So mm-hmm. do you know what I did? Murder, she ripped. Murder, she ripped. <laughs> and it got them to think about rope. Yeah. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? So I yeah, would yeah. draw my cultural resources because I want them to understand this language. Because as, as um, James Baldwin said, you know, sometimes we need to understand that the language that we were born into, the assumptions that underpin it are our enemy. Mm-hmm. Dr. Martin Luther King was, was the one who pointed that out when he spoke about, if you look in the dictionary under why is everything glorious and beautiful and bright and whole and holy and blah, blah, blah. And when you look at the, the, the synonyms for black, it's grim, it's blah, blah, blah. Martin, mm-hmm. Dr. Martin Luther King pointed that out. So what I'm basically saying is we need to have the right conversations about who we are, where we are, and what we face. And the biggest obstacle f- to me is when we racialize knowledge. We flip that racist script and then we want to claim everything. Mm-hmm. Because to be honest, we know that Africans created the first written languages. We know this. Yeah. Go to the British Museum. It's one of the biggest mind shagri you can experience. Go to the British Museum because they'll have, oh, the ancient Egyptians, and they were writing like 4,000 BC. And then they'll have, yes, but the first script is cuneiform from the Assyrians, 1,000 BC. Go to the British Museum. You see it in there yourself. There's two things that you've said, Les, which really um, stood out for me, and particularly thinking about some of the stuff we've been talking about on the podcast over the past few months. Bits you were talking about, I've been reading some earlier Stuart Hall and I've definitely said this on the podcast recently. I think it's worth saying it again because I think he was right then and he's still right now. That internalised racism or looking at ourselves in the way that white people see us. So you talking about the parents saying to you, my son is an academic is one of the most understudied, under-researched, under-acknowledged issues for us as people. If you could talk to, to a little bit more on that. And the other thing that you said, which you were talking about teaching marks, and I guess this talks to wider issues within our disciplines of sociology and how class is taught. And I love how definitive you are in talking about where black people are in the capitalist structure and thinking about the relationship to the means of production. We are the production. We have we, we were the production. That's where your class system comes from. So when you've got sociologists that will talk about class and say they don't talk about race, for me, this isn't coming from a disrespectful place, there's no shade here, but to me, that means that you have a misunderstanding of class analysis like, entirely. I'm happy to be challenged on that. I'm sure there's plenty of like well-to-do white sociologists that would challenge me on that. But I think you just put it really made me think there when you just when you just spoke about our relationship to production. But yeah, there's two things that really stood out to me and some things that we really need to sit with and reason with, as you say, constantly because we're yeah, probably not doing it yeah. enough right now. Well the internalized racism thing, 
You know, that again, it comes back to a Jamaican saying, Babylon released the chain, but then used them brain. You can take off the chains, but because it's inculcated, it's embedded. You know, when Carter G. Woodson wrote about the miseducation of the Negro, and he basically said, you know, when you control a man's, and we'll use it in a, you know, human sense now, when you control a man's thinking, you do not have to worry about his actions. You will tell him, stand here or go yonder. He will find his proper place and stay in it because they've been educated in that way. That's why he says their education makes it necessary. It's a bit like, and he wrote that book 60 years or something like 60 years after Reconstruction in America because he realised that when the American Negro had universal suffrage under the 14th or 15th Amendment and were no longer counted in parts of the southern states as three-fifths of a human being, articles of commerce, etc. The simple thing that, one of the simple things that Carter G. Woodson observed was black people could go to the front door of white people's houses, but they didn't. They started to go, they still continued to go to the back door. Now, what he basically said is, where does that learning come from? That socialization, or in anthropology, we'll call it acculturation. That is what you get from your community as good sense means common sense. Why do you do it? Well, we've always done it like that. And that's why people oftentimes internalize things. And it's only when maybe they're in a corner or they're caught in, they're, they're, they're put into a box or something and they start to realize, hold on a second, this doesn't make any sense. One of my daughters, when she went to primary school, my daughter who's 29 now, I'll never forget this, because there were some little racist kids there, with, you know, they, they were the manifestations of their parents, yeah. But this little kid <laughs> used to text her on my daughter and lick her in her head with a car all the time and all kind of... That's why I took them to Kung Fu, my last two girls. Lick her in her head to come on, big cork up on her forehead. <laughs> and I'm like, why didn't you text something and clart him with it? Oh, I don't think he would have liked that, Daddy. I'm like, where the hell did you come from? Me and her mum were looking at each other. But when it came to education and knowledge, I remember one day she came home and she said, ah, oh, this kid said to me, oh, all you black people are thick. My dad says so. And she said to him, well, how comes you never get marks as good as mine? That's mm. how we programmed. And I will say programmed in some ways them to mm. think. If someone says something, you know, I always say to my students, especially on some of, if I teach a module that is, if I say final year students, level six. And I will say to my students, in this module, you can bring in, especially my students who are not British or English, I'll say to them, bring in aspects of your own culture and teach us about it. So things that maybe won't make any sense to us, bring it in. And one of the best examples I've had in all my years of teaching was... Um, a Pakistani student, yeah, and this is so we're talking this academic year because in I I do this course called race 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 and ethnicity in popular culture, but we look at gender, we look at class, we look at all of that in there, but through popular culture, music. So we deal with drill and pardon me, we deal with drill, we deal with drill, grime, blah blah blah. <laughs> I, I encourage the young people to or the students to bring in. And do you know what this guy did? He came in, because on the last session, I always say to the students, right, this is your time. You need to bring in a popular cultural artifact. It can be a song, a poem, a dance, whatever you want to do. And you're going to come in and you're going to play it and you're going to break it down for us in the class. And what this guy did, this Pakistani guy, is about 
mid-twenties. He basically set up this argument and he basically said, if you watch the news and you listen to how Islam is represented in the news, it's almost like it's a loveless religion, yes or no? <laughs> yes. He played us this song, yeah? It's an Islamic song, so it's in Arabic. Plays this song and it was about seven minutes. And then he broke it down. You know what the song was about? Two lovers who met who were supposedly, if I remember correctly, I don't want to misrepresent him, but basically it was two lovers who met and the day before they went to the wedding, they had to meet this imam and he was basically pointing out all the pitfalls that can happen to them throughout the trajectory of their marriage. And it was like, yes, there will be days when you love each other. There will be days when you despise each other. But all the kind of stuff that we would supposedly comes out of the romance period of Europe. Mm. And here it is predating that period. And so what I basically said to the other students when we were like, oh, we were like, yeah, that's great. And I said, now, how come we don't get that representation on mainstream TV? The reason why is because it doesn't serve the interests of the people who want to tell us that Islam is the devil's religion and people who embrace Islam are the devil. They're all muggers, terrorists, whatever it is. They don't know anything about love. They have 11 teen wives. They don't have to support them, whatever, whatever, whatever. So to me, it's always about balance, but more importantly, we internalize that information because oftentimes no one's presented us with the counter. If you don't have the counter, then of course you're going to be myopic. Mm. If you've got no counter, my job, this is why I've said it. Look, I've said this for years. I say to people, that if you invite me to do stuff on Black History Month, the first thing I'm going to say to you is I don't even believe there's a thing called Black History. But I do know why I need to use Black History Month because it's one of the few times I can open up those spaces and I get invited into those spaces. But what I do in my teaching is if I know this information will help my students, I put it in there. I don't care who it comes from, what race, what gender, what sexual preference, what sexuality. None of that is important to me. What is important is... This is a counter to this Western canon. That's what I do. And if you want to break down internalization, oftentimes when you hear people coming out, with, I remember this is what one of my friends said to me. I go, so oh, what, you, what did you do today? This was years ago. And I'd never heard of this phrase before. And she goes, oh, nothing. I suffer from arthritis today. I went, what? what? <laughs> and she said, yeah, you know, it's when you're lazy. I said, the thing doesn't make sense. Because when we were styled as that, we were the hardest working people on the planet. We were from sun up to sundown. Do you understand me? It doesn't. Mm -hmm. When I said it to her, she goes, you know what, Les, I've been using it for years. I never thought about it. I said, because you're not supposed to. The one group of so-called people on this planet who you could accuse of not being lazy was so-called when we were Negroes. Mm. So how does that make any kind of sense? Things like that. And sometimes it's the simplest things that we take for granted, you know, that have the most potency because, for me, many of us invest in those things and we don't necessarily get the reasoning to actually think about, why do I believe this? You know, why do... It's like when I hear people say black people can't swim. Go to Jamaica. I've seen them youth swim out. Listen, I'm not a good swimmer, you know, I'll tell you, yeah, but... Show me another water, I'll get to the side. One word or the other. If not, put all a shark and swim with him, I'll get to the side. <laughs> but I go to Jamaica and I see little youths 
seven, eight, nine in Portland, where my wife comes from. Then they swam over to islands. These things might be like half a mile away, quarter of a mile away. Them going out there. So where does this whole myth come from that black people can't swim? Where does that yeah. come from? You know, it's I think part of things we internalize. But there's, I was going to say, this is what I was kind of saying. Well, say to Chantel and other in other conversations, having about these intergenerational conversations that we've had, yeah. and so I'm speaking to say my grandmother or my mum. I'm saying to, why did you say certain things to me without no explanation? You just you all just say to me, you you need to work twice as hard, yeah. and I'm like that that to a nine or a thirteen year old or eighteen, it makes yeah. no sense to me yeah. because from nowhere I've just I'm living a normal life, and one day you decide to tell me to have that chat. But the chat yeah. is not contextualized. All I can do is I can remember the day. This it just followed me throughout my adulthood. I have it keyed into me that I just need to be the best. And if I can't be the best, that failure is crippling. The idea yeah. of failure is so crippling to me that yeah. it, it prevents me from doing stuff. And it, and I'm trying to say, but you didn't have to have that conversation with me. It could have been if you contextualize. You don't have to be an academic, or you just have to contextualize from your own experience. And then once you have that conversation with me, I would understand. Yes. You yeah. didn't the reason. I argue that in my DJ book. I remember it was when I interviewed, you know, my sister and sister, Audrey, who, you know, wonderful conscious singer. Mm-hmm. And I remember we were talking about that and we spoke about, you know, well, I, I give thanks because my parents never said stuff like that. Mm. They never told us. Because what I said to people is, you imagine if somebody says to you, you have to work twice as hard to be as good as white people. And then you thinking up here somewhere, I don't know, you can work twice as hard, but let's say you do. And then you get the same qualification as, let's say you got your best friend is white, let's say. Mm-hmm. And they've got, they go to private school and you don't, but you work twice as hard mm-hmm. and you achieve the same grade as them. And then they get this, you don't get it. You both apply for this, they get it. You apply for that, they get it. You apply for that, they get it. That's going to create cognitive dissonance because now you're going to actually think, well, I can't be. I obviously haven't worked hard enough. You internalise that oppression. Franz Fanon talks about it. Mm-hmm. There's a guy called Bullen who writes a book on the psychology of oppression where he's dealing with Franz Fanon. That's what that's about. You internalise that oppression because what you're, it's like when people say, to young people, you can be anything you can. And I say, well, they can't. Yes, they can. You can be anything. I said, all right, go and be a Premier League footballer then and give me half your wages, please. <laughs> you know, here's you with two donkey foot like mine. You can be anything you can. No, you can't. What you can do is you can be realistic about what you can achieve within the constraints of your own capacity. And I'm not saying limit what you do. I'm saying have a real conversation. My my daughter who does neuroscience and psychology and all, I couldn't do that. When I was trying to read her dissertation, this the odd little bits of grammar that I could pick up. But all those calculations and the this that it just brought me back to when I did SPSS for my PhD and it nearly killed me. <laughs> I hated it. Oh, hated it. Hated it. That's what I'll be honest with you, for people like my daughter, <laughs> one of my sons who did psychology, that's like baby food for them. But it yeah. wasn't for me because my <laughs> brain doesn't think 
or I, yeah, no, it's, it's not about that, man. I, SPS is nightmare, man. But what I'm saying is, for my daughter, in my daughter, it's nothing. It's like my my other daughter who did medicine. She sent me her her dissertation to look it over, and the words that never end up with M X Y Z. The other ones I could try and fathom my way through. But what I really notice more than anything else, and it's like, you know, I don't know if your sociology tutors told you this, but I always say to my students, when you learn a social science, you're using it, you're learning another language. Because the way we use words is different from the lay people in the street. But in medicine, is even different times 50. So I'm reading it, and, I'm, and I, t- I remember sometimes I'd find my daughter and I'd say, I'm just reading this sentence, and I d- I'm reading this sentence, I don't know if it makes sense. And then she'd explain to me, like, okay, fair enough, yeah. And then I try and forget that. I don't mean <laughs> that, that in my head. But the yeah. point is, this is, again, how people get confounded. So here's one for you. Yeah. Why is it that intelligence in Britain is equated with an accent? Yeah. Well, Les, that, that, that's something which we have mm. been trying to work out, like just thinking specifically about this podcast, we've obviously got lots of people that have supported us in terms of this podcast, but our style and our way of reasoning is something that a lot of people within the academy on sociology and social sciences have had a problem with and have not taken us seriously or have questioned our authenticity to access knowledge and academic scholarship. So... The answer to that, Les, is something which, yeah, I feel like it just in the, in the context of this podcast is something that we're constantly but, grappling with and fighting. It, shall I tell you why? Because yeah. what is authenticity? There's a sociologist called exactly. Alex Kellers. He wrote a book called um, something like uh, Introduction to Sociology. It's a very small book. I remember I got it up here somewhere. Yeah. And he basically said, yeah, the first thing they'll say to you is you must understand the facts because that's very scientific. But what's the fact of our context? So if they say to you, we don't like the way you talk, you don't sound academic. I remember the amount of people who said to me, Jesus, are you sure you've got a P- are you sure you got a PhD? You're so cotton. I'm from yeah. South London, mate. I'm not gonna put on airs and graces for you. Why should yeah. I? And if you really want me to get raw cotton upon you, then I will. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it comes up. When I was on the radio, oh, you sound f- Jamaican. Why are you trying to be Jamaican? I said, I ain't trying to be anything. It comes out how it comes out. Yeah, yeah. So I don't have to prove my authenticity to anybody. And if somebody says to you, oh, what you're doing doesn't sound authentic, say, in the context of what? Mm-hmm. Because many times they're not talking about what you're actually saying, you know. They're talking about the way you say it. Yeah, yeah. And then they confuse naturally occurring speech with nice written prose or whatever it is. I remember yeah. one I got castigated on, I think I was on BBC News 24, one of them, and I said something like, yeah, that's what I think. And someone wrote, think, F-I-N-K, think. It's think, you moron, or something yeah, like yeah. that. I mean, that's yeah, not, yeah. I don't know if they saw me face to face and I get Millwall on them and stick one on them, they're not going <laughs> to But this is what happened. speech. It's like what I say to my students, you know, this is one of the things about why I said, why are certain types of, why is knowledge and intelligence associated with a particular accent? If somebody comes up, 
to you and they speak posh, you automatically assume, one, they know what they're talking about, and two, they're clever. How so? That absolutely brilliant conversation, Les. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're so grateful for your scholarship, your work, your writing, your contribution. Thank you so much. Brother Regis and Sis Chantel, I just hope you got something of use out of my humble opinion out of the reason. Because at the end of the day, you give me hope. You two give me hope. Because you know what? We've got people across generations who are actually taking a step back and starting to think about these things. You know, what is important? Because mm-hmm. one of the things that, you know, I would leave you with as a takeaway is learn, as Rasta say, when you see folly, just make it go one side. When you see people talking some one bag of foolishness, oftentimes they're either trying to prove they're cleverer than you, or they know they're not cleverer than you, but they want to prove that they're cleverer than you for whatever ego-driven reason it is. But at the end of the day, it should be, you know, for me, one of the things that has kind of assisted me, especially in controlling my temper, is... People will ask me something, and I'm like, you know what? Up here, I'm thinking, you know what? That ain't got nothing to do with me, and I don't answer them. Most people who know me will say to me, do you know people think you're extremely rude? You see, like it's today, we're talking, and you say to me, oh, Les, what's the weather like? I'm not even going to entertain that question, because I never call me as a meteorologist or whatever. You called me to reason about something, so sometimes it's very simple. When these people want to either challenge you because you're a woman, because you're a black woman, or because you're a black woman who is intelligent and articulate, but you don't articulate yourself in the Queen's English, what they expect, good luck to them. Or yourself, you're a brother, a young brother, you know, good dark skins, strong, powerful looking Chinese monkey bar head brother. You know what I mean? <laughs> These things bother you. You know what I mean? Because sometimes we just have to see folly and walk wide. Mm-hmm. But that's one of the things that, you know, there's an aspect of Taoist Chinese philosophy. And you know what it says? And this, again, is if someone wants to argue with you, you just say to them, look, what I'm giving you is for contemplation and not indoctrination. You want to be indoctrinated, you go and listen to some of these other people. Because we're not dogmatic. We want to be pragmatic in the way we put out knowledge. But we're not dogmatic as if this is it, this monolithic, myopic view is the only view, it actually flies in the face of social sciences. Because remember, social scientists, we cannot deal with absolute truth. We deal with interpretations because we are behavioral scientists. So we only deal with interpretations. And is your interpretation sound? Does it does it sound good? Yeah, fine. Maybe it doesn't. Fine. It doesn't matter. We're not dealing with absolute truth. The spurious nutters out there want to tell you, anybody will tell you, say them have truth, them is the devil. (laughs) For me. Thank you so much. I thank you, and as I said, I do thank Stay blessed and work good. Thank you. (laughs) And listeners, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you again next week. You have been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. If you enjoy the podcast, 
and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform.